One Week Season. One Week Season fam, welcome to the week six edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host, I am your guest, JM to win. Throw this podcast on 1.5x speed and let's get started. Kind of a crazy week on my end. Uh, my wife and kids were in Oklahoma visiting my wife's family this last week. And she was supposed to fly back last Friday with the kids. The kids were sick, so they pushed it back to Monday. And then I decided to fly to Oklahoma on Sunday, which is why Hilo wrapped up the Sunday morning email this last week. I flew to Oklahoma on Sunday, flew back with the family on Monday. We flew Southwest, so there were travel complications because that's what happens with Southwest this year, apparently. And then this week, we've had kind of the getting over the sickness and then uh, kind of a, a re-engagement with the sickness last night. And my wife is in pretty bad shape today. So um, yeah, it's been a bit of a wild week on my end. In fact, doubly wild because Hilo's whole family is sick as well. But we're powering through and getting to the Angles podcast, actually recording this a little bit earlier in the day than normal in order to hopefully kind of leave a little flexibility in my schedule for expected bumps the rest of today. Fortunately, we have a smaller slate this week, and even more fortunately, this week came together really quickly for me. In fact, I had a pretty good sense by Tuesday night. Now, normally Monday night is the night when I start really looking at the week ahead, and this week I didn't even start until Tuesday night because Monday we didn't get in until one in the morning. And by the end of Tuesday, it was like, oh, I have a pretty good sense of what I think about this slate. Now, it's not super unusual for that to happen for me. But then as I start getting into research and diving deeper into things, obviously thoughts change throughout the week, ideas develop, deeper research leads to realizing that certain spots that I thought were good might not be good, vice versa. So last week, for example, my opening roster, when I was just messing around with things on Monday or Tuesday night, had five or six players I didn't end up using. It also had Kadarius Tony on it. Unfortunately, that original roster last week also had Mike Williams, who kind of got cut off my list pretty quickly after that. But yeah, this week was unique in that things came together relatively in a relatively straightforward manner for me. So I'll talk about a couple of the reasons why that's the case. And then we'll dive into this week's bottom-up build. And this week's bottom-up build is actually a really fun one. You'll see why as we go through it. We'll walk through what the build looked like for me as I was building it. And uh, you can kind of see where we started and where we ended up. So quick overview on the slate. We talked about this, obviously, in the Angles email, but 10-game slate and a few kind of clear top spots on the slate. So one of the things that I want to make sure I'm focusing on on a week like this Let's take this Washington-Kansas City game, right? So Washington's only scored, quote, only. They've scored 29-plus points two times this season. That's respectable, especially for a team like Washington. Kansas City has allowed 29-plus points in every game this season. And we know the issues the Washington defense has had. We know that Kansas City coming into this game at 2-3 and three, is going to try to put points on the scoreboard. In fact, they're missing Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Daryl Williams is, they love Daryl Williams. He's a fine running back, but he's not an explosive player. So he's going to be there. He's going to be in the game plan. He's going to get a couple catches, probably more than a couple catches. Uh, he's going to probably get a couple touches inside the 10-yard line. But the core focus for them in using Daryl Williams will be just to create a little bit of balance and continue opening things up for play action and the passing attack and whatever else they are doing in this spot. So when we put it all together, we have a relatively high level of certainty. I'll put it like this. It's not unusual to see a game with a 50-point 
over-under that ends up going for 42 or 43 points. We often talk about that the over-under is not saying the score is going to be exactly this, right? It's saying if we played out this game 100 times, we would get roughly 50 games on one side of this over 150 games on the other. As we saw last week with the Chargers and Browns game, which opened at, I think, 48.5 and got bet down to 45.5. I might have those numbers slightly off, but it it was kind of that middling total and then was bet down throughout the week. Well, that game went for 89 combined points. Now, that's an outlier way for that game to play out, but that's just one game on the overside of that total. There could be games on the underside of that total. We saw it with Browns and Vikings the week before, where they had, I think, a 49-point total. It was one of the higher totals on that week, and it played to a 21-point score. That's not super unusual for a 49, 50-point total. All that that total tells us is that this is kind of the the mark that we set as the 50-50 split. So it it behooves us to go a layer deeper on these games and recognize what the actual game environment looks like and what's the difference between this 50 plus point total and this 50 plus point total, for example. So in this spot, in this week, this is the type of game where unless the Chiefs just come out really flat, which again, that can happen, right? Say five, 10 times out of 100 in this spot, that can happen. It's actually very interesting in that a lot of the best offenses on this slate, and this is something to keep in mind just from a standpoint of what sorts of outlier things could happen this week. A lot of the best teams on the slate or spots on the slate involve a West Coast team, or we can we can call Kansas City, you know, their central time zone, but they're they're closer to the Rockies than they are to the Atlantic Ocean, right? Uh, a West Coast team. So whether it's the Chargers, Arizona, uh, the Rams, the Chiefs traveling east and playing an early game. Now, the early game matters more for the West Coast teams, right? Because their internal clock for their internal clock, that's like a 10 a.m. kickoff. Whereas for the Chiefs, it's like a noon kickoff. That's not that big of a deal. But the travel from the travel and these teams playing on the road. It's just an interesting dynamic in that we tend to, as we talk about all the time, overrate our certainty of what's going to happen in a spot. So people are going to look at some of these games and just feel very confident in these games. And there are certain ways that these games could fail that we really can't account for. So again, one of the ways that the Chiefs and the Washington football team could fail where this game could fail is just the Chiefs coming out really flat. But again, what do we what do we want to account for that for, right? Five times out of 100, six times out of 100, seven, 10 times out of 100. And outside of that scenario, it's really, really difficult to come up with scenarios in which the Chiefs score under 24 points, right? In which the Chiefs just totally bomb in this spot. I guess injuries is another one. So outside of those two scenarios, we can feel pretty confident about what the Chiefs are likely to do here. Flip that around. The Washington football team is an aggressive football team. We have Scott Turner designing a a sharp offense, trying to attack downfield. There are explosive pieces on this team between Antonio Gibson, Terry McLaurin, even J.D. McKissick, who can make big plays in the open field. And the Chiefs' defense has been absolutely horrendous so far this season. Now, it is worth noting. In fact, let me look up the exact number here. The Chiefs have allowed the second lowest target rate in the NFL to wide receivers. And that's not unusual for the way that the Chiefs' defense plays. They are likelier to filter targets to the running backs and to the tight ends. That's something to keep in mind. But one thing we should also keep in mind is that the team that has allowed, the only team that has allowed a lower target rate to wide receivers so far this year is the Philadelphia Eagles. We saw what Tyreek Hill did against the Philadelphia Eagles a couple weeks ago. Uh, we saw just last night what the Bucks were able to do to the Eagles. So just because a team allows a lower target rate to wide receivers doesn't mean that a wide receiver can't smash there. Doesn't mean that a player like Terry McLaurin can't still see 10 or 11 or 12 targets. It's just something, It's a, a, again, there is no one single stat that we should overrate over all the others, but it is just one tiny piece of the puzzle to keep in mind, especially if you want to get into some of the ideas that we'll talk about deeper into this podcast.
but speaking pure pure <laughs> speaking purely <laughs> Uh, speaking purely from a game environment perspective, we can expect Washington to be trailing. We can expect them to be aggressive and we can expect them. This is not a team that wants to, this is not the Chicago bears. They're not going to say, Hey, how do we slow this game down and try to grind out a win, right? And try to kind of sneak our way to some sort of 23 to 20, victory. That's not what Washington is about. They are going to try to win. Obviously, they're going to try to slow down the Chiefs, but they're going to go into this game with a realistic expectation of their chances of completely blanking the Chiefs. They're going to come into this game knowing that they need to score points. They're going to be thinking through a game plan throughout the week that is intended to attack the weaknesses of the Chiefs defense in order to maximize their ability to score points. And look, we have Taylor Heineke. This is not as sure thing of a spot as the Chiefs side, but Taylor Heineke is a gunslinger. He's going to run around. He's going to escape the pocket from time to time. He's going to throw some errant passes. He's going to make some mistakes, but he's also going to attack, attack, attack. And from that perspective, we have a game that has a high likelihood of one team scoring a lot of points and a pretty good chance of the other team keeping pace. So I say all that to say, we need to understand that this slate offers that game. In fact, I, I said in uh, in the Angles email that that game, I almost just crossed it off my list right away because it was like, oh, this is too obvious. And then I checked myself and was like, okay, well, sure, it's obvious. But that doesn't mean you check it off your list right away, right? There are strategy ways to play this game. And like, let's worry about strategy second. Let's think about what the best spots are first. So we need to be aware that this game is on the slate and that means that as we build in other spots on this slate, we need to, eat, well, either A, we need to, as I just kind of alluded to, we, we need to build better around the Chiefs-Washington game than the field is building. So if we are using that game as a core on our rosters or on a roster, we need to build better around that game than our competition is going to be building around it. We'll talk more about that later in the pod as well. And... If we're going to other spots, we need to either be combining those other spots with plays from this Kansas City-Washington game or taking into account this Kansas City-Washington game. In other words, saying, okay, well, I want to bet on a spot that can, the way I would put it is, I want to bet on a spot that could outproduce the Kansas City-Washington game, even if the Kansas City-Washington game hits a 75th percentile outcome. In other words, even if the Kansas City-Washington game goes over the over-under, you know, which I think is still uh, at about 55.5 points. So even if this game combines for 60 points, 62 points, I want to be targeting spots that can still vault me past the Kansas City-Washington game if that's the case. So in other words, not putting ourselves in a position where we're saying, okay, I'm going to bet on this spot and hope Kansas City-Washington fails. It could happen, but it's a lower percentage chance. So why would we want to position our rosters to say, okay, I'll bet on this spot and then hope that this other good spot fails when we can look at things objectively and say, okay, the, there aren't that many paths to this game failing. So instead, if we're building around other spots, we want to make sure that those other spots are spots that we can justify saying, look, doesn't mean that it's going to top the Kansas City-Washington game 50% of the time or even 30% of the time or even 25% of the time. But just to say, okay, I am betting on a game that if it comes together the right way, could outproduce that game, even if that game produces well. So that's my focus this week. And that has led to me, especially, so that I guess that's step one, right? Is if I'm going away from this game, I want to be thinking about this game still and thinking about the low likelihood of failure from this game. And then the second thing here is that there are a few other really interesting spots on this slate. So what that has led me to, and this will be a very interesting and unique player grid this week, um, not least of which because I think my, my wife's going to go to the ER this afternoon and I will have uh, a an eight-month-old and a two-year-old while I try to write the player grid. Uh, but not just because of that, but also because I'm seeing this as what I'm calling a stacks on stacks week. And the player grid is pretty much fully centered around 
three spots, three games. There are very few floating plays, very few one-off plays outside of the games I'm focused on that I will have on my rosters this week or that I will, I will be cycling through my rosters this week. My plan right now is to have nine rosters to put three in the larger size power sweep, which is a three-entry max, $150 entry, three in the smaller power sweep, also uh, three-entry max, $150 entry, and three in the juke, which is a small field, $400 three-entry max. So that's nine rosters in all. And my thought is I am going to take my three favorite games and have three rosters anchored by one game, three rosters anchored by another, three rosters anchored by another. Now, I'm not sure yet if I'm going to if I'm going to put like three Kansas City, Washington rosters in one contest and three of another game in another contest, three of another game in another contest, or if I'll do, you know, one Kansas City, Washington roster in the juke, one in the smaller power sweep and one in the larger power sweep. Um, and then, you know, do that with the other games as well. So there's two different ways that I could approach that side of things. I will also, again, the idea here is stacks on stacks. So, if I'm building a roster around Kansas City, Washington, I will still be pulling in pieces from the other two games. So in other words, still betting on those game environments instead of trying to pull one-off plays from other game environments. So saying, hey, the Rams could score 40 points here. Who's going to be on the field a lot for the Rams? If I have salary left over, maybe I end up with Cooper Cup on one of these Kansas City, Washington rosters. Maybe I end up with Robert Woods. Maybe I don't have salary left over. And I say, okay, who's going to be on the field a ton for this team and could end up with a 25 to 30 point score just by virtue of the fact that this team is going to score a lot of points and this player is going to be on the field a lot. Van Jefferson is an example. Tyler Higby is an example. Obviously, Daryl Henderson is also in the mix from the Rams as well, also as well. Um, so that's kind of the way I'm looking at it at this week is I will have this stacks on stacks approach where each roster will sort of be anchored by a particular, the three rosters will be anchored by one game, three rosters by one, probably one passing attack. In other words, uh, I might not have Daniel Jones, although that's a very interesting conversation as well. So I've already teased that this Rams game is another one. So it might be three Stafford rosters, or I might actually do two Stafford rosters and one Daniel Jones roster. We'll get to that again in a little bit. And then the third roster we'll get to in the player grid, but I will tease that right now and say that it's the uh, Baltimore and Chargers game. So again, the idea for me is to be pulling pieces from those games into stacks led by other games. So team stacks, game stacks, whatever the case is, I'm going to be trying to blend these three favorite games of mine together. It's interesting that this week provides this type of setup because one of the mistakes that I made last week and I talked about this, I alluded to this in, or I guess I didn't allude to this. I actually had this realization during the inner circle discussion on Tuesday night during something I said, which was that last week, week five, so week five, uh, for those of you who are not in inner circle, I had a good week. I had Derrick Henry on four out of six rosters. I had Alexander Madison on five out of six. I had Devonte Adams on four out of six. I had Kadarius Tony, our boy on four out of six. Uh, two out of six rosters where I got all four of those players together, which is about 140 points from those four players. Unfortunately, my game stacks in those spots did not produce. And so the rosters where I had all the right pieces together from a floating plays perspective ended up only scoring like 175, 180 points because my game stacks fell apart in those spots. Okay, we are going to keep going. I now have... Evelyn Golden, my eight-month-old, in my arms um, because things are not going well in my wife's body at the moment. So she is taking a shower and heading to the ER. Uh, we will see how, how this podcast goes with Evelyn helping me. There might be some cooing and talking in the background. Um, so my game stacks fell apart in those spots. And I was kind of looking at things after the fact in preparation for Tuesday night's Inner Circle podcast. And one of the things that I was thinking about was 
what would a stack have looked like, right? So I had a, a super sharp feel for the floating plays last week, which is why I kind of started my rosters from the floating plays. So I started my rosters from the floating plays and then looped in the stacks. Now I knew what stacks I wanted to put in, but I think that my thinking at the start of the week was, okay, Derrick Henry's a great play. There aren't that many high-priced great plays. Derrick Henry's a great play. Devontae Adams is a great play. Uh, you guys knew last week that I really liked Kadarius Tony. And then once Alexander Madison came available, it was like, okay, well, he's clearly one of the top plays. The only roster where I didn't have Madison was just from a strategy perspective. Otherwise, it would have been six out of six Alexander Madison. But what that led to me doing was I essentially was looking for stacks that would allow me to play those pieces. So I was on sharp stacks, right? The Tennessee and, and Jacksonville game, that that game objectively could shoot out. If we play out that game 100 times, there are going to be some high scoring outputs from that game. But I was on that game, not because that game jumped out to me from the start, but more so because the floating plays that jumped out to me dictated that I was looking for some cheaper stacks that could allow it all to come together. So in preparation for that Angles for that Angles podcast for that Inner Circle podcast, I was looking at that Browns and Chargers game and I was just thinking what would have happened if I had identified which uh, by the way Larejo identified that game in the Oracle last week uh, in the scroll. Uh Goldie's a fan of that. So I was thinking what would have happened if I had identified that game as, as the starting point for a roster, and then identify the floating plays. And so I built a roster around that scenario to be able to talk through that on Inner Circle on Tuesday night. And I actually built it in my head on the plane on Monday. So I didn't have pricing in front of me. And because I hadn't been super focused on that Browns-Chargers game, I didn't know pricing off the top of my head on all of the players. So I thought that Herbert was about 6,700 and that Eckler was about 7,200, that Mike Williams was about 7,200. Actually, I think Eckler was 7,600. Anyhow, and so I was kind of messing around with this in my head and thinking, how would I put together a stack from this game. Now, obviously, we were cherry-picking after the fact. We already knew what the statistics were from that game. But I put together a Herbert, Eckler, Mike Williams stack. One of the most logical bringbacks there was Kareem Hunt. So I put him on that roster and then sort of messed around in my head with, okay, so what floating plays would still fit on here? Derrick Henry wasn't going to fit, but Devontae Adams, Kadarius Toney, Alexander Madison were still able to fit on that roster. So then on Tuesday, I was able to sit down, look at salary from the weekend, put that roster together and realize that it would have scored 270 plus points. The Millie Maker winner scored 260. Really no other rosters last week scored more than 255. So it was an interesting look at the fact that if I had started from a game stack from that game, obviously, uh, I would have been in a totally different position. And I would have only been able to play three of those floating plays that I wanted, but that would have kind of forced me to make sacrifices there instead of making sacrifices on game stacks where I could have gotten several spots right at once. So then I took this exercise one step further and I was like, okay, what was one of the most obvious game stacks from last week? One of the game stacks that we identified in the player grid. It was Tom Brady plus two pass catchers and a bring back from the Dolphins being viable but not necessary. So I built a roster that way. I built a Tom Brady, Mike Evans, Antonio Brown roster and then sort of filled in the blanks from there with the sharp floating plays that I had and then with salary working out, put in Gasecki at the end of that roster. Gasecki scored eight points, right? So I wasn't trying to just say what were the best scores from this spot? Instead, I was trying to say, what what would I have built? Built a total player grid roster, right? Starting from the buck stack. So instead of starting from the floating plays, I built an entire roster using the player grid, but starting from the buck stack. We walked through this roster on Inner Circle Tuesday night. It would have scored 255 points, which would have been good for first place in every tournament except the Millie Maker. So again, starting from a stack instead of starting from the floating plays. So on this week's bottom-up build, I started with one of my favorite stacks this week. 
I hope you guys don't mind Evelyn chiming in as much as she is. Um, we're doing what we can this week. So the... Yes. So we started, I started this stack with one of my, with this roster with one of my favorite stacks, which uh, one of the reasons is one of my favorite stacks is because I always love when we can sort of brand a stack or name a stack. And so we started with what I'm calling... Don't steal my thunder, Evelyn. This is a good one. I'm starting this with what I'm calling the McKinecki stack. In other words, McLaurin, McKissick, and Heineke. All right, I've moved downstairs where the sound quality is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little more echoey. So again, I apologize about that, but we might have Evelyn uh, talking in your ear a little bit less. Uh, Again, we're doing the best we can this week. So what I love about this McKinecki stack is it actually looks better on paper than than the word sounds out loud, McKinecki. But what I love about this McKinecki stack is that, A, nobody's really going to be thinking about this stack. B, the game flow for this stack sets up perfectly. It's always scary to play... <laughs> a running back who just has a pass-catching role, right? It, it actually makes me think about if any of you played on Draft Street back in the day, 2013, 2014, and played MLB on there, you rostered, I believe it was three pitchers instead of one on FanDuel, two on DraftKings, and you had the option to roster relievers for cheap. And the interesting strategy angle that they gave you there was that saves were worth a lot of points. So if you were willing to take on the risk of this cheap closer, you had to bet on the game being close, the team that this closer pitched for being in the lead at the end, and the game being close enough that this pitcher could come in and notch a save. But if you got that, you could get sort of a mid-tier pitcher's price at a super cheap price tag. Basically embracing a little bit of extra risk in order to open up more paths to first place on the weeks or on the days when that play would hit. So it's the same thing with these pass catching backs. Pass catching backs who are on the field a lot can get eight to 10 targets. These are the types of guys who can go for a huge game at 25. We've seen Naheem Hines before people were thinking about him last year, multiple times. I think it was three different times he scored 25 plus points. I actually had him one of those weeks, except on rosters that were total duds otherwise. Um, And so finding these plays, you get lower ownership because the game flow has to go a particular way. And so people get scared to play these plays. But in a spot where we can identify a high likelihood of the game flow playing out the way that we want it to, we make money over time by being willing to bet on these plays. And there's that sickness that we've been dealing with. I think uh, I think Evelyn wanted to be the star of one of these after William was the star of an inner circle show one night. Um, again, we're doing the best we can this week. So the idea in this spot is to take this this stack that people won't think about on a player who needs the game flow to go his way, but the game flow probably will go his way. So it's a higher, it's a low probability bet compared to taking a lead back who's guaranteed to see 20 touches, but it's a higher probability bet than the field will assume. And the upside is there to justify it. Speaking of the upside being there to justify it, this McKinecki stack has combined for 75 or more points in two out of four Heineke starts. Again, game flow has to work in our favor for this to work out. But if the game flow works in our favor, we're in good shape here. And there's a good probability of us seeing a combined 18 to 20 targets between these two guys. And again, getting in position to score, they cost 17.5K in combined salary. So anything, you know, over 65 points, you're in really good shape here. And... You can get 60, 65, 75, or more points from this group that really nobody's going to have. And and the great thing is once you have one of these stacks that almost nobody else has, say you're in a 10,000-entry tournament, well, what's McKissick's ownership going to be? 3%? Maybe we call it 4%? Well, that's 400 rosters, then how many of those 400 rosters also have Heineke? And how many of those 400 rosters also have McLaurin. So you're now maybe competing in a 10,000 entry field against 10, 15, 20 rosters 
if everything comes together and this stack hits. I guess more than 10, 15, or 20 now that we're talking about this at OWS, but right, like 30, 40, 50 rosters. And so you can basically do whatever you want on the rest of your roster without having to think about strategy first. Instead, you you can look at favorite plays first. So that's where we're starting the bottom-up build is the McKinecke stack, uh, Heineke, McLaurin, and McKissick. Now, two quick things I want to talk about here. One, Ricky Seals-Jones is very much in play. You could pair Ricky Seals-Jones with McKissick. You could pair Ricky Seals-Jones with McLaurin. You could play him solo as a one-off where you're building around another game. I would not necessarily want to play him, just him and Heineke, right? Because Heineke, you're saying, if you play him, you're saying he's going to put up a tournament-winning score. Well, if he puts up a tournament-winning score, he's probably carrying more guys with him than just this 3K tight end. But uh, Ricky Seals-Jones can be combined with either of these other guys um, and be part of these stacks. And I'll certainly have some Ricky Seals-Jones this week. The other thing I want to bring up here is that we're working with a 44K salary cap uh, in the craziness of this week's podcast. Uh, I forgot to lay out what the bottom-up build is. Obviously, we're in week six. Almost all of you are listening to this podcast for the 10th time in your life, for the 30th time in your life, for the 50th time in your life. But for any of you who are new to this podcast, first off, welcome. Second off, sorry about the way this week's uh, is sort of set up. And thirdly, uh, bottom-up build, what we're basically doing is we're taking a 44K salary cap. And this is allowing us to find some of the better value plays on the slate so that when we need to use those, and that was pretty important in that Browns Chargers, that theoretical Browns Chargers 270 point roster that I built was the steps for me again are going to be game stacks, floating plays and value pieces that allow us to fit in things. But we don't want the value pieces that we can stomach. We want the value pieces that we actually feel comfortable rolling into a week with. So the idea in the bottom up build is to identify who those value pieces might be. So in that Browns chargers theoretical stack, the pieces were the pieces were the game stack, the floating plays that I liked, and then a couple of the value pieces that allowed everything to be unlocked. But then we also want to build this roster, talking about roster construction theory and talking about the slate as a whole so that we can get a sense of the slate as a whole and how it all fits together on that particular week. And also keep learning about roster construction theory and how we can properly put those pieces together. So hopefully the fact that this week's pod is slightly unlistenable with uh, two kids in your ear in the background is made up for by the fact that it's so valuable to talk through these things each week. So the uh, on this bottom-up build, we're working with a 44K salary cap, and we're basically saying, what if everybody had a 44K salary cap? So not just where are the values, but also how would we build in order to win a tournament where we're using these pieces and everybody has a 44K salary cap. So the most obvious thing to do with this McKinecke stack is obviously to have a bring back from the Chiefs. But with a 44K salary cap, with the fact that we've already used McLaurin, with the fact that Kelsey and Hill are the centerpieces of the Chiefs offense, there would be a tendency to either auto bring back one of Kelsey or Hill, and then just say, okay, well, we had to have a bring back. Now let me figure out, let me find some, quote, bad values, right? And that's how you end up in bad value territory is starting out with these expensive pieces and then saying, okay, how can we make these expensive pieces fit? Or the other tendency, and this is important, the other tendency is to say, okay, well, we don't have the salary for it, but we still need to bring back. So let me take Nicole Hardman. Let me take Daryl Williams. Let me bet on Byron Pringle, right? Like, let me do something here to get me a bring back in this spot. What I want to bring to your attention here is that just because you have to work in this smaller salary cap doesn't mean that one of these cheaper players is now the guy who's going to hit. We can still take the things that we objectively know about this offense, that Kelsey and Hill are the focal points, and that when a team is not forcing the Chiefs to go other places, it's typically going to be those two guys who produce at the highest level. So there are probably better value plays 
even in this scenario where we're taking three Washington pieces, there are pr- probably better value plays than just forcing a Kansas City bring back. And what we can essentially say in this spot, what I'm essentially saying in the way I built this roster is I'm betting on the Chiefs doing well. I'm it, the, My bet on three Washington pass catchers is a bet on the Chiefs doing well, but I don't have the salary to get to Hill or Kelsey. And I think there are better value plays than the ancillary Chiefs pieces. Now, again, I'm sort of betting on game environments this week. So I'm sure I'll have a little bit of exposure to these cheaper Chiefs pieces because I'm kind of pulling all of my pieces this week from three games, for the most part, pulling all of my pieces this week from three games. But on this particular roster, that's not where I'm going because those are not the sharpest value pieces. So again, the way I'm viewing this is that I'm basically betting on the Chiefs offense doing well, and I'm betting on them doing well through Kelsey and Hill, optimally with things spread out enough that neither guy posts a had-to-have-it score, and the Chiefs put up a bunch of points. I need those guys to do well. I need Kelsey and Hill to do well on this roster, but again, we're working with a 44K salary cap, so I'm going to funnel my bet on the Chiefs offense through the Washington side where I can get it at a more affordable price and do something that's different from what the field is doing. The next thing I did on this roster was I slotted in the Lions defense at 2100 so that I could see what else fits. Now, from here, I would be willing to go up to other defenses, but the Lions defense has played really well this season or I should say really well for expectations and for a team priced at 2100. They have 11 sacks on the year. They have three interceptions on the year. They have three fumble recoveries on the year. They gave up 41 points to San Francisco and 35 points to the Packers. But since then they've given up 20 or sorry, they've given up 19 to Baltimore, 24 to Chicago and 19 to Minnesota. Holding Baltimore and Minnesota to 19 points is no small feat. So getting this team at home at 2,100 against a quarterback in Joe Burrow who is really good, but also is really young and has thrown, I believe it's five interceptions this season. Uh, We've got a bad offensive line. He's going to take six interceptions this season. Uh, Bad offensive line. He's going to take some sacks. And so getting the Lions at 2,100 is a great place to start, especially because I haven't looked at the ownership yet, but this is not typically the type of team that everybody's going to load up on. Now, they are going to be the team that stands out the most at the cheapest end of the price range, but getting them onto this bottom-up build roster allows us to then move forward and see what else fits. We can always pivot up and do something different from a strategy perspective deeper into this build, but right now we have the McKinney stack and the Lions defense. Now, the next spot for me was Devontae Booker. I say was because of what we'll get to in a minute. So Devontae Booker is 5,400. He's playing against the Rams defense. Rams defense has been mediocre against the run so far this year, but the Giants have an awful offensive line. So it's not like we expect Booker to have a huge game on the ground, but the main reason I put in Booker over some of the other value running backs this week, including Khalil Herbert, is because of the pass game Role. Khalil Herbert had 34 catches in his entire college career. Devontae Booker could probably get five or six catches in this game alone. Furthermore, the Giants are going to be aggressive. They've been an aggressive offense so far this year. And the fact that everyone hates on Jason Garrett so much, and the fact that everybody is caught up in the narrative about how bad Daniel Jones is, kind of leads to people never really wanting to go to this team at the level that maybe they should, right? And so we get lower ownership on these guys than maybe we should. So Devontae Booker, uh, not that he's going to be low owned this week, but 5,400. And again, we don't have to really worry about strategy too heavily once we have a McKinney stack in because our roster is so different already. So we can put in favorite plays, see what all thing, what everything looks like, assess things at the end to see if anything needs to be changed from a strategy perspective, but basically focus on favorite plays first and foremost. So Devontae Booker is the RB2 on this roster behind McKissick. The next spot was Marquise Hollywood Brown. So I already talked about liking this Chargers and Ravens game. We'll see how deep I'm able to get into my write-ups today since I've got 
two kids um, and it's kind of hard to be on a computer. But basically this game is, it's a broad range type of game. It's the type of game that could be lower scoring, but they could also be really high scoring. This would be an even better spot if neither of these teams had hit last week because fewer people would be looking at this spot, ownership would be lower. But this is one of those spots, similar to Kansas City and Washington, that actually until late Thursday night, this game really wasn't on my radar. And all I was thinking was, oh no, it's too obvious, right? Like that's where everybody's going to be going. And as I started thinking through, so Marquise Brown was on, on my radar, on my build, but that's the only place I was really looking. But then on Thursday night, I was prepping the uh, player grid and I was thinking through, okay, we've got the Rams, we've got Washington and Kansas City. What's the third game that could blow past the Rams? It could blow past Kansas City. There are a few options here. There's Arizona and Cleveland. There is Minnesota and Carolina. And there is Baltimore and the Chargers. Now, none of these three games might do it, right? That's sort of the nature of DFS, the nature of football. But what we're trying to find is the game that would make us the most money over time. The game that is going overlooked because it's the third best game or the fourth best game or the fifth best game and doesn't draw the overwhelming ownership that the, that the best game is likeliest to draw. So this game, as I started thinking, okay, like challenging myself to say, okay, but what is the third best game? What is the other game that could blow past everything? Well, the Browns are obviously going to try to play slow. They're going to try to prevent deep passing, whereas the Cardinals, obviously, they are focused on sort of this horizontal passing game in order to set up the deep passing, but they're comfortable kind of working this horizontal passing attack. So it wouldn't be, obviously it wouldn't be surprising that game shoots out, but it also wouldn't be, it would be more likely that game ends up like 26 to 19 than it is that that game shoots out, right? That's why the Cardinals entered this week with the 14th highest, quote highest, Vegas implied team total out of 20 teams, even though they're the third or fourth highest scoring team in the NFL. So that was not the game that made the cut for me as far as number three game. Minnesota and Carolina, we basically have two teams that are easier to attack on the ground than through the air. Um, and two teams that are, again, comfortable kind of keeping things into those shorter and middle areas of the field if the situation calls for it. And so uh, I, I like how Hilo laid out that game in the NFL Edge as sort of a second half game, right? The sort of game that could go into halftime 10 to 7, and sure, it could shoot out in the second half, but these players are kind of priced appropriately already, right? So you'd like a full game type of shootout environment. And so that sort of led me back over to this Baltimore LA Chargers game as the other game I wanted to focus on. So again, I was already on Marquise Brown, but then from a standpoint of wanting to do stacks on stacks, do game environment bets, this play works out even better. So Marquise Brown has 19 or more DraftKings points in four or five games. And the only game when he doesn't is that drop-filled game against the Lions, where he dropped, I think it was three touchdown passes. So we're basically looking at a guy who has produced at, I mean, go look at DeAndre Hopkins' game logs and compare them to Marquise Brown's game logs, right? We're, we're rostering a guy who's performed at a 7K, 7,500 wide receiver level, and he's available at 5,900 in a game environment that we really, really like. So Marquise Brown was the next piece on this roster. There are also some other interesting wide receivers in this mid-range, particularly Michael Pittman. We'll touch on Pittman in the player grid, one of the few floating plays that I have interest in this week, partly because Wentz and Pittman is actually a stack that I have interest in this week. I probably won't end up with it because I see this so much as a stacks on stacks type of week. But Pittman is the other guy from this price range who really stands out to me from a standpoint of who is mispriced, right? Who is a guy who can get 8 to 10 to 11 to 12 targets with a large downfield role? Obviously, Cortland Sutton, I believe he's 6,200, also fits into that category this week. But Marquise Brown is where we went here. So that gives us the McKinney stack, Devontae Booker, and Marquise Brown. So the next thing I wanted to do was go cheap at wide receiver in order to see what that opened up for the rest of my roster. 
One of the cheap wide receivers I've been eyeing this week is Van Jefferson. Again, we want to look for rather than if, or I'll say it like this. There are times where there's a cheap wide receiver who's very underpriced. Kadarius Tony last week, uh, Deontay Johnson last year, the Cortland Sutton uh, second season, Cortland Sutton this year. There are times where we can find those plays and, and we want to isolate them and target them. When those plays are not available, rather than trying to take one-off shots in random games, Paris Campbell's a good example. You guys know how much I love Paris Campbell. Paris Campbell's 3,400, maybe he's 3,200. And he has explosive upside. He hasn't really shown it this year. He's still been kind of slow getting back from the Achilles injury. But rather than taking a play like that and saying, oh yeah, maybe he could get six or seven targets, maybe he has a big game. Yeah, maybe he could, but... If I'm already betting on the Rams offense, if that's one of the places where I want to be placing bets kind of across the board this week, then it behooves me to say who is going to be on the field a lot for this high scoring offense. One of the things that Cubs fan does really well is finding kind of players nobody's rostering, nobody's quote thinking of, and they're obvious to him because all he's saying is, hey, what team could score a lot of points this week and what cheap players on the field a ton because you know, every once in a while, every six games, every seven games, whatever it might be, that guy's going to run into a huge game. What I really like, too, about Van Jefferson is that Matthew Stafford is willing enough to... Matthew Stafford's looking for the big play first. He's willing enough to let plays develop downfield. And when you watch these games, these Rams games, you see how often he's waiting to see if something develops downfield first before throwing in the intermediate level and then before throwing in the short areas of the field. So since Van Jefferson, basically Van Jefferson's not getting a lot of schemed targets. He's getting sometimes one or two a game, but he has a six target game, a seven target game because every once in a while, just things start opening up downfield. Things start opening up in the end zone, whatever it is. And that's where Van Jefferson is working. So the fact that Stafford's eyes are always there and Van Jefferson's always working there. He's going to be on the field probably about two thirds of the plays. He's 3,400. It just sets up really nicely for a place where you can say, hey, here's a way to bet on this Rams offense without spending a bunch of money. So now we have two running backs, running back spots covered with McKissick and Booker. We have quarterback covered with Heineke. We have Marquise Brown and we have Van Jefferson. Oh, excuse me. And we have Terry McLaurin. So we have three wide receiver spots covered. So the next spot I went to was the tight end position. It's an interesting situation here at tight end in that Obviously, we're on bottom-up build. We've used some salary, right, on on getting up to Terry McLaurin. So we're going to go with one of these cheaper tight ends. It's fine this week because there are plenty of guys who you can say, look, there's not that much separation between the 3K tight ends and the 4,400 tight ends, right? If you take Tyler Higbee versus Ricky Seals-Jones, the scoring potential is lower on the Washington offense, but not significantly lower. The targets are probably going to be higher for Ricky Seals-Jones than for Higby. And Higby's a better player, but put it all together, their projections shouldn't be that far off from one another. And Ricky Seals-Jones is 3K. So basically there are guys down in this cheaper end of the price range that is just as good as getting up to 4K because once you get up to 4K, it's almost like, now I'll have some Higby this week again because I'm betting on the Rams offense. But once you get up to 4K, it's like, well, you might as well get up to Mark Andrews, right? And then then if you're up in the Mark Andrews range, then you have to start comparing, okay, do I want Andrews? Do I want Waller? Do I want Kelsey? So it's fine to go cheap at tight end this week. It's also fine, obviously, to get up into the, hey, let's bet on the Baltimore offense through Mark Andrews. Let's bet on the Chiefs offense through Travis Kelsey. Uh, and as I talked about in the player grid, I, or in the NFL edge, I probably won't have Waller this week. But if playing Waller, you're saying he outscores Kelsey. This is important to keep in mind. If you play Waller at 6,600, you're saying he outscores Kelsey at 7K. Which means you don't want to just blindly say, and this is just, again, talking about roster construction theory. You don't want to just blindly say, okay, hopefully Waller outscores Kelsey. Instead, you want to, on that roster, account for how Waller outscores Kelsey. In other words, the likeliest way for Waller to outscore Kelsey is for Tyreek Hill to have a blow-up game. 
or for one of the ancillary pieces on the Chiefs offense to have a blow-up game. So in other words, Waller plus Tyreek Hill, or put that differently, any Waller roster should have a Chiefs, a non-Kelsey Chiefs piece on that roster. Going back to the bottom-up build, Ricky Seals-Jones, 3K, we just talked about him, but we already have McKissick and McLaurin on this roster. So I don't want to overload this roster by adding Ricky Seals-Jones. I will have some Ricky Seals-Jones on other rosters with Heineke, with McLaurin, with McKissick. In other words, McLaurin plus Ricky Seals-Jones, McKissick plus Ricky Seals-Jones. But on this particular build, we already committed to the McKinecke stack, which leads me to kind of exploring the other areas of this price range. And in exploring the other areas of this price range, one of the interesting spots that pops out is Jared Cook at 3,900. The Ravens have actually allowed the, or faced the highest tight end target percentage in the NFL. Now that's largely a function of the offenses that they have played so far this year. A lot of tight end heavy offenses, but there is nothing in this matchup that should shy the Chargers away from Jared Cook. Jared Cook, there again, whenever we're thinking negatively about a spot, we also want to shift things and think positively. So if our natural tendency is to say, yeah, but Jared Cook has some two target games, he might end up with only two targets and he could he could have a really bad game. Yes, the flip side of that is Jared Cook is used downfield. Jared Cook is used in the red zone. Jared Cook has some six target games. So Rather than worrying too much about floor at a 3,100 tight end on a tournament roster, we can say, what about ceiling? Furthermore, this ties in with our Marquise Brown bet and allows us to continue betting on this Chargers-Ravens game environment. So we now have our three wide receivers, our two running backs, our quarterback, our tight end, our defense. And the last spot is the flex. And we had a little over 6K to work with. And as I looked in that price range between wide receivers and running backs, the player who actually made the most sense in here was DeAndre Swift. So DeAndre Swift, with his pass-catching role, with his 70% of the time on the field, with his explosive upside, with the fact that when we're looking at this 5K, 6K range, we don't need, there's not going to be guys who we can say, oh yeah, this guy's going to score 30 points. But we do need guys who we can say, This guy clearly can score 30 points. And DeAndre Swift has that. Furthermore, DeAndre Swift is kind of the rare guy in this price range who could go for 35 to 40 on a week when everything comes together. So DeAndre Swift. But that led to me then, look, so now our roster is complete, right? But that led to me looking at this roster and saying, okay, well, we have three running backs. Let me move Swift up to the running back two spot. Let me move Booker down to flex and let me reassess if Booker is the best way for me to spend salary here. Now, as part of this, I also wanted to examine, I've got Swift and the Lions on the same roster. Well, we're not rostering Swift. Typically, right, running back plus defense is positively correlated because you're talking about, say, a home favorite offense and the running back has an upside for touchdowns and if they're in the lead he's gonna get extra rushing work but that's not really what you're rostering swift for you're actually rostering swift hoping he catches six or seven passes you're rostering a defense again obviously we're rostering the lions saying hey they can get some sacks some turnovers they can get five six seven eight points at only 2100 but optimally you're rostering a defense hoping for a defense special teams touchdown in other words As soon as you put a defense on a roster, you're now saying, hey, look, this defense, I have to to assume that this defense scores a defense special teams touchdown. So what story am I telling? Well, a story I'm telling with the Lions defense and DeAndre Swift on the same roster is a story in which Swift is catching passes and scoring touchdowns and a roster on which the Lions defense scores a touchdown. That would be a game in which Cincinnati is putting up points. So in other words, more of a back and forth type of affair. So not rostering the Lions defense, hoping they hold Cincinnati to 19 points. Who cares? If we get some sacks and turnovers and a defensive touchdown, I don't care if the Bengals score 35. 
the sacks and turnovers and defensive touchdowns more than make up for that. So we're basically saying, hey, now we're betting on this game kind of putting up points, Swift getting touchdowns the and continuing to catch passes, the Lions getting touchdowns on defense. So what completes that story? Well, I've moved Booker down to the flex. He cost 5,400. And here's T. Higgins at 5,300. So I end up making this switch over to T. Higgins at 5,300. And that completed stage two of this bottom-up build. There's a stage three. Stage three is kind of interesting, and I'm still not sure where I sit on this. And that is, I watched that Bears game from last week, and Khalil Herbert really, really, really impressed me. Khalil Herbert, forget that he's a sixth-round pick. What was Chris Carson, a seventh-round pick, right? Like, it's not super unusual for a running back to emerge from the deeper rounds. It's not super unusual. James Robinson was undrafted. There are good running backs who can step in and play really well. And Khalil Herbert, his vision and his decisiveness were truly something to behold. He sees the field so well. And some of the reads he made and cuts he made were extremely impressive. How will the Bears look to beat the Packers? You know, there's a tendency for people to just say, oh, well, yardage and touchdown back. This team's going to be behind. That's it. Don't, don't think about this guy. But how the Bears are going to try to beat the Packers, they can be down 10 points in the third quarter. They're still going to have Khalil Herbert on the field, first down, second down. So maybe he comes off the field for Ryan Nall on third downs, but he's going to be on the field basically until midway through the fourth quarter. And at that point, he's only coming off if they're down multiple scores and needing to just go pass, pass, pass. By that point, Khalil Herbert probably already has 20 carries. After watching Khalil Herbert, I was so hyped up that I put him in the blue chips category in the player grid. And then I kind of digged deeper and I was like, man, this guy really has never caught passes. And I moved him down to light blue. And then I sat with it a little bit longer and I was like, okay, I do this sometimes. I get overhyped on a player. I put him into the blue chips or light blue and then he bombs. And then I'm like, well, I mean, sure. I say blue chip is low likelihood of failure. Khalil Herbert could bomb. He's not a blue chip. He's not even a light blue chip, but he is a bonus piece this week for me. And he's a high upside bonus piece. He's a very interesting bonus piece. And I kind of think, and maybe I'm wrong on this. Again, I haven't really been looking at ownership projections yet. And I do all of my research in a bubble. So I don't know what everybody else has been talking about, but I kind of think that Khalil Herbert is going to just get moderate ownership. You know, he's not going to be a 20% owned back. That's my guess because there's some other values. He, there's unknowns. They're a they're an underdog against the Packers. But again, if we actually break this down logically, what are the Bears going to do? What is their game plan? They're going to try to give Khalil Herbert the ball. They're going to try to get him 20 plus carries. And the threat of Justin Fields being there opens up opportunities for Khalil Herbert to have open running lanes. And again, he sees the field really well. He's decisive. He gets up, upfield quickly. So Khalil Herbert started becoming really interesting to me. And at 4,600, then becomes very interesting for me to consider from a bottom-up build perspective. So the last step of this roster was I asked, okay, if I go from DeAndre Swift... William's sleeping, Papa. If I go from DeAndre Swift down to Khalil Herbert, what does that open in salary? Well, it opens up enough to go from T. Higgins up to Jamar Chase. And if we're saying everybody has a 44K salary cap, how many people are going to find a way to get up to McLaurin and Jamar Chase? Very few people. We talked in the NFL Edge this week about all the reasons there are to like Jamar Chase. I believe he's second in the NFL in percentage share of team air yards. He's 10th in the NFL in total air yards. 
Uh, he's, I think it was fifth in the NFL among healthy players in average depth of target. And he's taking on a Lions defense that faces the deepest average depth of target in the NFL. So things line up really well for Jamar Chase to have a big game. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but getting from Swift, who again, sure he can get up over 30, but his likeliest range is about 20, 22, 25 points, down to Herbert, who I think can get you two catches, maybe 15 yards, over 100 yards and a touchdown. We'll add up those points with DraftKings scoring with a three-point bonus, and we're up over 20 points on Herbert. So if I think that I can get 20 points from Herbert and I can get him to Jamar Chase, who Higgins, obviously Higgins has 30-point upside, but Higgins is likely to end up in that 15 to 18-point range, whereas Jamar Chase could end up in the 15 to 35-point range. So that allows me to get another player who can get me that huge upside in this spot. So the kind of final piece on this was Khalil Herbert and... Jamar Chase added to this roster, which gives us McKinecke stack, uh, Taylor Heineke, Terry McLaurin, JD McKissick. Uh, no bringbacks in that particular game. Marquise Brown, at, well, uh, Khalil Herbert at running back, Marquise Brown at wide receiver, Jared Cook at tight end, Van Jefferson at running back, Jamar Chase, Van Jefferson at wide receiver, Jamar Chase at wide receiver, Lions defense giving us, I think it's, I, I can't look at my computer right now because I'm chasing kids around, but giving us, I think it's 6.3K in salary left over, or in other words, 43.7K in salary spent. So with that, I am going to get out of here. Looks like I have a nasty diaper that needs to be changed. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get out of here and and figure out how to, how to get the player grid done uh, in the craziness of today. Um, but yeah, thanks for hanging out this week. Again, I apologize for the extra sound effects in the background. Really, really liked what we had to explore in this week's Angle, Angles podcast. So hopefully you were able to absorb most of it in spite of the... Uh, extracurricular activity. With that, I'm going to get out of here. I will see you on the player grid and I will see you on the site throughout the weekend and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards when it's all said and done.